A number of years ago when Michelle and I were in France visiting some missionaries, we took a trip one day to the famous Louvre Museum in Paris. And on that particular day, the museum was filled with a large number of aspiring artists who were attempting to improve their skills by painting copies of some of the great masterpieces. It was just that day of the week that they were doing this. And apparently this is a common technique used in developing artistic talents. And some of those copies were very good. Some of them were not that good. But once in a while, someone paints a copy of a priceless original that can barely be distinguished from the masterpiece. Now, what's true, folks, in the world of art, it's also true in the world of Bible teaching. Just as there are genuine Bible teachers who speak forth the truths of God's Word, so there are counterfeit Bible teachers who claim to speak for God, but who mislead people by bringing a deceptive, erroneous message. The Bible calls these fraudulent individuals false teachers, sometimes false prophets. And Jesus spoke about them in his Sermon on the Mount. So I read to you Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 39. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, the bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we began to look at this passage, these verses from the Sermon on the Mount. And as I told you at that time, the reason that Jesus even brought up the issue of false teachers in his sermon was to warn the Jewish people who were listening to him that day about their teachers, the men who they were raised listening to, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, because these men were false teachers who had consistently, consistently misinterpreted God's word constantly twisting and distorting scripture to fit their own sinful lifestyles. And so having just taught his followers that their scribes and Pharisees had led them into error by teaching them to hate their enemies rather than love them, and there were a host of other errors, Jesus now proceeds to warn his followers not to listen to these men anymore. They grew up listening to them, but it's over. Don't listen to them anymore because they're false teachers. In other words, the passage before us is a warning, a warning to those who were sitting there in the Galilee area on this hillside listening to Jesus teach. It is a warning to them to keep listening to him, to keep following his teaching rather than listening to their religious leaders, as I said, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were indeed false teachers and would continue to be false teachers teaching error. But in addition to this particular reason for teaching the people about false teachers, there is another reason. There's another reason Jesus had for bringing up the subject 
of false teachers. You don't really see it in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. You see it very clearly in Matthew's account of the same sermon. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, as you can see, these words are obviously about two gates. One narrow, which leads to eternal life. One wide, which leads to eternal destruction. But I want you to understand that immediately following these words, Matthew tells us that Jesus spoke about false teachers, declaring some of the same truths that Luke reveals in his account of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when we put this together, what we learn from this is that as Jesus began to draw his sermon to a close, to a conclusion, he was finishing up, he did so by inviting those unbelievers in the crowd, there were unbelievers there, in the crowd to enter his kingdom. And he likened this entrance into his kingdom to going through a narrow gate which leads to a narrow road which leads to eternal life. But Jesus also told them that they had a choice to make. Because in addition to this very narrow gate, which represents the one way of salvation through faith in him, there is another gate that stands before them. It's a wide gate which opens up to a broad road which leads to eternal doom and ruin. See, what the Lord wanted his listeners to know is that if they were not true followers of his, if they were not his disciples, then here's the situation they would find themselves in. As they stand looking at these two gates in front of them, pondering which gate to go through, contemplating the cost of being a true follower of Christ, considering the matter of genuine repentance, they need to be aware of something that's posing a serious threat to them. They need to know that just outside the narrow gate, there are false teachers, false prophets, so that as they're thinking, as they're considering the claims of Christ, thinking about walking through that narrow gate by placing their faith in Jesus, they can expect these false teachers to try to persuade them not to enter the narrow gate. You see, what Jesus is telling them, and really every unbeliever who is aware of his teaching, is that while you are considering these two gates and these two roads, counting the cost of being one of his disciples, thinking through the ramifications of repentance, what it would mean to repent in your life, trust him for salvation, you can expect something. You can expect false teachers to come along and tell you something like this. Everything is just fine with you. It's fine. There's no need to change. There's no need to repent of your sin. In fact, sin isn't really even a problem. Your self-esteem is all that matters. Just be positive. Be sincere. Live any way you want to live. There's no judgment here because God is love. He just wants you to be happy. That's all. The road to heaven is not narrow. It's not restrictive. It's broad. It's spacious, and there's plenty of room for anything you want to believe and any way you want to behave. So come, come. Here's what Bible teacher and author John Stott had to say about why Jesus spoke about false teachers immediately following his words about the narrow and wide gates. 
He said, it is surely not by accident, therefore, that Jesus' warning about false prophets in the Sermon on the Mount immediately follows his teaching about the two gates. For false prophets are adept at blurring the issue of salvation. Some so muddle or distort the gospel that they make it hard for seekers to find the narrow gate. Others try to make out that the narrow way is in reality much broader than Jesus implied, and that to walk it requires little of any restriction on one's belief or behavior. Yet others, perhaps the most pernicious of all, dare to contradict Jesus and to assert that the broad road does not lead to destruction, but that as a matter of fact, all roads lead to God, that even the broad and narrow roads, although they lead off in opposite directions, ultimately both end in life. See, Jesus followed his statement about entering the narrow gate into his kingdom with a warning about false teachers because he knew that just outside of that narrow gate, that's where false teachers hang out. That's one of their favorite places to hang out. They want to persuade unbelievers not to come to faith in Christ as well as they tend to try to convince and snag and snare new believers to follow their way. False teachers always seem to be around the places where the true gospel is preached and people are considering coming to Christ for salvation. So who are these false teachers and why are they there? Well, they're trying to persuade individuals not to go into Christ's kingdom. That's why they're there. So who are they? Well, some are liberal denominational leaders. Some are seminary and college professors. Some are leaders of cults and false religions. Some are religious radio and television personalities. Some are seminar and conference lecturers. Some are pastors. And some are popular authors of religious books. All of them, though, distort the gospel. Remember, we're not talking about secondary issues. We're not talking about the mode of baptism. We're not talking about prophecy. We're talking about the essentials of the gospel. And what are these individuals doing, hanging outside the narrow gate? Well, they're busy. They're very busy telling people their erroneous views of how to get to heaven. And tragically, the message that they're telling them is the message that will only ultimately lead these folks to hell because it's not God's message of salvation. It's a false message given by false teachers. Therefore, knowing that these false teachers are just outside of the narrow gate trying to lead unbelievers astray from salvation and that in the past that's exactly what they've already done to so many, Jesus warns us to stay away from them and their deceptive messages. And the way he does this, folks, is by exposing these men for what they really are, what they're really like beneath all of their pretense of piety and all their religious talk, and therefore why they are so dangerous and why they must be avoided and not listened to at all. So the passage before us in Luke chapter 6, as it unfolds, we see Jesus giving four truths about false teachers. The first two truths, which we looked at the last time we studied this, or number one, that false teachers will lead you astray. Why? Because they are blind guides. They're blind guides. And a blind guide can't possibly guide another blind man because without the ability to see, they will both fall into a pit and hurt themselves seriously or perhaps even die. Secondly, false teachers are to be avoided because if you follow a false teacher, you will become the heretic that he is. Jesus said a pupil is not above his teacher. When he's fully trained, he'll be just like his teacher. They'll turn you into false teachers as well. 
Now today, as we continue looking at our Lord's warning about false teachers, we see a, a third and then a fourth reason Jesus gave as to why they must be avoided. Number three, it's because they are self-righteous hypocrites. Self-righteous hypocrites. Again, notice verses 41 and 42. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. Now having just revealed that false teachers are to be avoided because they're blind guides and they turn their students into the heretics that they are, Jesus now reveals something else about false teachers. He tells us that false teachers are self-righteous hypocrites. So, what is a hypocrite? Well, in ancient times, a hypocrite was originally an actor in the Greek theater who wore a mask while he was performing because underneath the mask, he was a completely different person than the role that he was playing on stage. So he wore a mask to cover up. Eventually, though, in time, like a lot of words, the definition of a hypocrite was broadened to mean anyone who pretends to be something that they really aren't. And that's exactly, folks, what false teachers are. Pretending to be righteous, religious, godly, they aren't that at all. Not at all. False teachers are never godly. They are never true Christians. They are always unregenerate, unsaved individuals who give the appearance of being godly, but inwardly, Inwardly, they're just like anybody else. They're lost, rebellious souls and sinners. That's all. Later, in Matthew 23, Jesus would rebuke these men about their phony, outward appearance, hiding the true condition of their heart. Here's what Jesus said, not about these men, but he said it to these men. Matthew 23, starting in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup, and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly... You're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Listen, false teachers are nothing but fakes. They're counterfeits who give the appearance of being righteous while in their hearts they are totally unrighteous. So the question is, why do they do this? Why do false teachers go to such lengths to pretend to be something they're not? Well, Jesus explained why in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount... Starting the very beginning of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this. He said to his own disciples, so he's saying this in reality to us, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So the Lord is saying, yes, practice righteousness, which means obey the word of God, but your motivation is not so that people will applaud you and think how spiritual you are. 
Jesus said, if that's all you're doing it for, you got your reward. You did it for the applause of men. You got the applause of men. There's no reward for you with the Father. And then he goes on to speak of the hypocrites. And he's telling them, don't follow the Pharisees. Here's what the Pharisees did. So when you give to the poor, meaning you as a follower of Christ, a follower of mine, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Do you realize what the Lord is saying? The Pharisee would look around, he would see someone poor, and he'd blow a trumpet to get everybody's attention. And when everyone was looking because he just blew this trumpet, he'd put some money in the cup. That is what was going on. Look at me, everyone. He wouldn't quietly walk by and put some money in there. No, he had to have the applause of men. There's even more. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, Jesus isn't condemning anybody for praying in public. People pray in public all the time. What he's condemning these hypocrites for is they love to pray in public so that they could be seen by men. And when he says on the street corners, in the original text, it's broad boulevards. It would be like us going out in US 19 and stopping the traffic so that we could pray, so everyone could see how pious we are. That's what Jesus is talking about. They did this to get the applause of men. That's all they're getting. Verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. See, the Pharisees, being the hypocrites that they were, they were consumed, obsessed with trying to impress people with their godliness. And so they did a lot of things that looked like they loved to obey God, give their offerings, pray, fast, but it was all a show. It was all a religious performance to gain the applause and the approval of others. They didn't care about obeying God. They only cared that others thought that they loved to obey God. That's all. And now here in Luke chapter 6, verses 41 and 42, Jesus reveals something else about their utter hypocrisy. Not only were they hypocrites trying to impress others about their relationship with God, but they were also hypocritical in that they tried to convince others that they were more godly than they were. You see, in these verses, Jesus reveals that these men were self-righteous hypocrites who considered themselves to be morally superior to everybody else. And they let others know this by taking it upon themselves. No one asked them to do this, but they took it upon themselves that it was their responsibility to point out everyone else's sin, nitpicky as they might be. Notice once again what Jesus said about these men in verse 41. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye. Now, frankly, what Jesus presents here is rather humorous when you understand what he's really saying. It's even a ludicrous situation. It's an absurdism. Instead of speaking now about false teachers, which the Lord had been doing to his disciples, Jesus now directly addresses those Pharisees and scribes who were in the crowd of people that day listening to him give this sermon. And he asked them a question about a scenario that is literally so absurd that they couldn't possibly miss the point 
that he was making. Jesus pictures a Pharisee noticing a tiny, tiny speck which was in someone's eye, while at the same time failing to notice a large log that was in his own eye, just sticking out of his eye. Now, the absurdity of this scenario is that the speck that the Pharisee was, oh, so concerned about in someone else's eye, in real life, it would have been a small piece of straw or a tiny chip from a wood beam. While the log, which was in his own eye, but he couldn't see it, was a large beam of wood used in the construction of a roof or to bar a door. Now, you can see what a rather comical situation Jesus is painting. It's what we call hyperbole. Hyperbole means an obvious exaggeration for the purpose of making a point. The point being here is that while false teachers love to point out the lesser sins of others, they never seem to see the greater sin in their own lives. See, although this is intended by Jesus to, to be comical, to make a point, in reality, though, it's a rather serious situation. And that's because the speck in someone's eye represents some real sin in their life, something that's wrong in their life. And this false teacher, he's looking at this speck, he's scrutinizing it, he's observing it, no doubt criticizing it, no doubt shaming the person and calling him out for his sin. But while he's busy rebuking this person's small speck of a sin, he fails to see this enormous log, this wood beam that's sticking out of his own eye, which represents not simply any sin in general, but note this, it represents the far more serious sin of self-righteousness. Now what Jesus is saying is that while false teachers love to point out the sins of others, they never seem to see their own terrible sin of pride and arrogance, their haughtiness, self-righteousness. But that really, that shouldn't surprise us because as you'll recall just a few verses earlier, as I said, Jesus referred to the Pharisees as blind guides. And now he tells us one of the ways they reveal just how blind they really are to spiritual truth because they fail to see how self-righteous and haughty they are. Listen, it's important for you to understand that one of the marks of a false teacher is that they love to find fault with others but never seem to see any wrong in their own lives. Oh, they may say they're a sinner, a sinner in general. They're not a terrible sinner. They don't see the sin of self-righteousness, but that's what they are. Jesus spoke about this prevalent sin of self-righteousness in the Pharisees of his day when he gave a parable in Luke chapter 18. And the parable speaks of a Pharisee, and he represents all Pharisees of that time. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be 
exalts him. This Pharisee, as I said, it was typical of all Pharisees of that time. He exalted himself above others because he thought of himself as morally superior to others. As I've said before, I wouldn't be surprised if he dismissed this man, this tax collector, with the wave of his hand, the riffraff, the low life. I'm not like this guy. It's all self-righteousness. It's not genuine righteousness from the heart that loved God. Many years later, also, the Apostle Paul, as you know, he was once a smug, self-satisfied Pharisee. He would capture, he would capture just how self-righteous men really were, the Pharisees in particular. When in Romans chapter 2, he spoke of the Jewish person of his day, who thought he was so much better than others, especially Gentiles. This could be the Pharisee. It could also be the smug Jewish person who thought he was better than others. It could be altogether. Notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, so he is referring to a Jewish person, maybe he had the Pharisees in mind as well, and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So their hypocrisy is that in the very things they condemned others for, they were guilty. They were guilty of doing the same exact things, only they were oblivious to their own sins. And Paul condemns this attitude of self-righteousness, even though he was once exactly like this. But God humbled the apostle when he saved him on the road to Damascus. However, those who remain false teachers, they are not humble men. They're arrogant men. They're egotistical. Men who condescendingly look down upon others and they love to meddle in the lives of other people by pointing out how everyone else is wrong except them. Concerning the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, John MacArthur wrote this. He said, The wretched and gross sin that is always blind to its own sinfulness is self-righteousness. The sin that Jesus repeatedly condemns in the scribes and Pharisees, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout his ministry. Almost by definition, self-righteousness is a sin of blindness or of grossly distorted vision because it looks directly at its own sin and still imagines it sees only righteousness. The log in this illustration represents the same foundational sin of self-righteousness that Jesus has been condemning throughout the sermon. But listen very carefully, because although the Pharisees no longer exist as a religious sect, I mean, if you go to Israel today and ask someone, where is the synagogue of the Pharisees? They won't know what you're talking about. There's no group today in Israel or anywhere else for that matter, known as the Pharisees. They don't exist as a religious sect. However, sadly, the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees lives on in many Christians, who although they are not false teachers, they tend to do the same thing that false teachers do. They spend much of their time criticizing and pointing out the sins of their fellow Christians while never acknowledging that there's anything wrong in their lives. 
These self-appointed critics seem to delight, and I mean they delight, they enjoy doing this and telling other people and other churches how wrong they are about a host of issues. But somehow they never see how judgmental and overly critical and proud they are. Thinking that they're standing up for righteousness. They'll tell you that they love God. They'll tell you how spiritual they are. They love, though, to boldly tell everyone else how unrighteous they are. So why do they do this? Why do people like this spend so much time and energy, and it does take time and energy, looking for the faults of others, and then making those faults known publicly, which in our day often takes place on social media? Why do they do this? Well, they do this because the hypocrite always wants to make himself look good in the eyes of others. And what better way to do this than to point out how bad others are? You see, modern-day Pharisees love to meddle in other people's lives and tell them how bad they are, even if they haven't actually sinned, because it makes them look good. Why? Well, since they are not engaged in, in what they accuse others of. They're not doing those bad things. Look how good they are. But in reality, this is just a decoy. It's just a smokescreen. It's a cover-up to hide how sinful they really are. Because by making others look bad, they want you to think that they're upright, they're godly, they're righteous, but they're not. Many years ago, there was a man in our church who was very pharisaical and that he was constantly criticizing other people. I mean, he criticized it seems for everything, like television shows that people watched, like the music they listened to, any movie they went to, he had to be critical of that, the clothes they wore, anything that did not meet with his approval, he criticized. And he was rather verbal about it, rather outspoken about it. Well, one day after listening to a duet singing a very wonderful song in our church service, this man decided to criticize the song. And I decided that I had enough of this. And so I asked him to meet with me and another elder in my office. And in the course of my conversation with this man, I asked him how he was doing in his own walk with the Lord. I asked him what God was doing in his life. He didn't answer me. Now, my office is not that small, but I thought, well, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he didn't hear me. So I said it louder. And folks, he still didn't answer my question about how he was doing in his relationship with the Lord, even though I know he heard me. You know why he didn't answer my question? It's because there was nothing going on in his life spiritually. He had nothing to say. All of his criticisms of others were made in order to make him appear godly and spiritual and morally superior to others. He put everybody else down, but there was nothing going on in his life. He had nothing to say to me about how God was at work in his life. The truth of the matter is that it was all a cover-up to hide his spiritual deficiencies. He wasn't spiritual at all. One has to wonder if he even knew the Lord. He just sounded like he was spiritual by criticizing others for being, in his eyes, unspiritual. Folks, that's the way that the Pharisees were. They majored on pointing out everybody else's sin while they couldn't see how self-righteous and proud they were. So they ended up looking down on everyone else thinking that they were so high and mighty and above everyone. But it doesn't stop there. It actually gets worse. It doesn't stop there with a false teacher merely criticizing you. No. No, you see, false teachers feel compelled to take it 
another step by offering to, note this, they offer to help you with your own sin, to help you get over your sin. Notice again what Jesus said in verse 42. Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. So now, notice what Jesus said a false teacher does. He offers to take the speck out of the other person's eye. Meaning that he offers to give this person some help to overcome his sin. He offers counsel. He's going to sit down and tell this person how to correct his speck of a sin. But whatever help he offers, I want you to know it's useless. His solution simply will not work. Why? Because he cannot see clearly since he has a huge log coming out of his eye. And it blinds him to the truth. It blinds him to spiritual reality. As one Bible teacher put it, he said he's like a blind eye doctor who tries to perform an operation on someone else's eye. It's exactly what he's like. Folks, that's the way false teachers are. They are spiritually blind eye doctors operating on others by telling them what to do to overcome their sins, but they're in no position to address anyone else's relatively small sin until they address the huge sin of self-righteousness in their own life. And that's why Jesus said to them, you hypocrite, first, first, take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to see, to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. In other words, he's telling them before they can attempt to deal with anyone else's sin, they first need to deal with their own sin of self-righteousness. How? By repenting of it. Humbling themselves before God by coming to Christ for salvation. They need to be converted. And only then, once they've done that, once they're converted, they will see clearly enough to help others with their sins. So this is the true character of all false teachers underneath their pretense of godliness. They are self-righteous hypocrites. So our Lord's word to us is avoid them. They're dangerous. Don't listen to their teaching. Don't watch them on television. Don't buy their books out of curiosity because they will only criticize you, tell you how wrong you are about so many things and offer no real and lasting solutions to your problems because all they have to offer you is error. All they offer you is false religion. But self-righteousness is just one, one glaring defect of a false teacher. Their sin actually goes much deeper than this. And as Jesus continues giving his sermon, he reveals the real source of the problem, the real root source of the problem with false teachers and why they must be avoided. And in doing this, he tells us a fourth reason why false teachers should be avoided. Number four, because their hearts are evil. Their hearts are evil. Verses 43 and 44. For there's no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand the bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Now, in these verses, as you can see, it's rather obvious, Jesus gives an analogy from the world of agriculture to communicate a critical truth about false teachers. He says that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, while a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. His point being, as he says at the beginning of verse 44, for each tree is known by its fruit. 
And then he gave an example of this self-evidence, and it is self-evident, it's obvious. It's obvious truth. He said, men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. In other words, nobody gathers figs from a thorn bush because they know that a thorn bush doesn't produce figs, it produces thorns. And nobody picks grapes from a briar bush because they know it does not produce grapes. Now, what does this, all this, have to do with false teachers? It has to do with them in a very direct way. It's everything. And Jesus connects the dots for us in verse 45 so that you can easily see the point that he's making. He says in verse 45, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now, we see here where the Lord was going with this agricultural illustration. Just as trees are known by the fruit they produce, so are people. Now, Jesus mentions two kinds of people, the good man and the evil man, and what they produce. So, who are these men, and what kind of fruit is produced by them. What's the Lord referring to when he talks about the fruit coming out of them? Well, first of all, I want you to notice the last few words of verse 45 because these last few words, that's the key to understanding what the Lord is saying. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. His mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now, what this tells us is that the fruit that Jesus has in mind are the words that are spoken by a good man and an evil man. In other words, just as the fruit that comes from a tree reveals what? Reveals the true nature, the real nature of the tree. So the words that come out of the mouths of these two kinds of individuals, they reveal their true nature. So who are these men? Well, understand that by good man, Jesus isn't referring to someone who is inherently, intrinsically good. Someone who's sinless. Someone who's perfect. Since scripture says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. So he's not talking about that at all. No. By good, the Lord simply means someone whose heart has been changed by the transforming power of God in the act of regeneration. So that although he still struggles with sin, he now has a new nature, a divine nature, a nature that is righteous. Therefore, out of his treasure, his treasure meaning his inner being where he stores his thoughts, out of his treasure comes good and righteous words. That is to say the good man is a believer. And the words that he speaks reveal this because they come from a new nature, a nature that's been changed at conversion. So if the good man is a believer, then who's the evil man? Well, obviously he's an unbeliever, but he's not just any unbeliever. Jesus is talking here about false teachers who are unbelievers, explaining what they're really like underneath all of their pretense. And what he's telling us is that the reason that false teachers speak such heresies and blasphemies and deceptive words is because they have an evil nature, and that's all they have, a nature that has never been transformed by God's power in the work of regeneration so that the words that come out of their mouths are evil since they come from an evil, unregenerate heart. My friends, understand that false teachers, though they may come across as godly and righteous, they aren't. They're evil and they're deceptive. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.15 that they, false teachers, they masquerade as servants of righteousness. And frankly, they are very successful at deceiving many people. The cults are loaded with people. False religions loaded with people. Liberal churches, people are attuned to that. They deceive people, and that's why Jesus referred to them in Matthew 7, 15, in these words. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are savage wolves. You see, although false teachers come to you looking good on the outside, wearing sheep's clothing inwardly, they're like hungry, savage wolves. That's what they're really like. And Jesus compared false teachers to ferocious wolves because they pose as much danger to us as literal wolves do to sheep. You see, in Israel, during the time of Christ, wolves roamed the countryside looking for a sheep that had strayed from the flock. And when they found such a vulnerable sheep, one that was isolated, one that was alone, they attacked it without mercy and they tore it to pieces. And Jesus said this is precisely what false prophets, false teachers want to do with unbelievers who stand looking at the two gates in front of them, trying to decide whether to enter Christ's kingdom through the narrow gate or just continue down the broad road that's leading them to destruction. In other words, these spiritual beasts will give you a message of error that will urge you to neglect the narrowness of Christianity and encourage you to follow the broad way that leads to destruction. And they'll do this because like ferocious wolves, False teachers want to destroy you. They want to eternally destroy you and they'll do it by sending you to hell with their teaching. And how do they do this? Well, Jesus said they do it by deception. Paul said that. Notice that Jesus called our attention to this deception by telling us that false teachers are not easy to recognize or detect. And that's because he said they come to people, notice this, dressed in sheep's clothing meaning that they give the appearance of being something that they are not. What exactly, though, does it mean when one wears sheep's clothing? Well, what does one wearing sheep's clothing look like? Well, many people interpret this expression, sheep's clothing, to mean that false teachers look just like sheep. In other words, they appear to be genuine Christians, but they're not. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about, and I'll tell you why. In biblical times, shepherds wore distinctive wool garments, note this, made from the sheep that they cared for. The expression sheep's clothing appears to be a direct reference to the outfit of a shepherd rather than to the sheep. So then what Jesus said, when Jesus said that false teachers come to you in sheep's clothing, he was saying that the deceptiveness of false teachers isn't trying to look like other Christians, but they try, note this, to look like legitimate Christian leaders. That's to say a false teacher gives you the outward impression he's a genuine man of God. Oh, he's a shepherd who cares for your soul, a spiritual leader who cares for you and loves you like a shepherd cares for his sheep. But that's not the case because underneath he's really just a wolf out to destroy you. False teachers are wolves in shepherd's clothing. That's the thought here often hiding behind exalted religious titles, impressive academic degrees, and the usage of impressive biblical words and phrases that nobody else knows what they're talking about. But all this is just a cover-up. It's a charade to conceal their real identity as savage and ferocious animals. 
And they do deceive people all the time. However, there is a way not to be deceived. A way to detect the truth about these individuals. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 6, 45, when he said, For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Folks, the way to discover a false teacher is by the words that he speaks, the words that come out of his mouth. Because Jesus said, out of an evil heart come evil words. That's the whole point the Lord is making. You can spot a false teacher because his teaching is evil. It's not just unbiblical, it's anti-biblical. You can spot them since it comes from a heart that's evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, their hearts are evil, come evil words, heresies, blasphemies, false teaching. See, whatever, whatever is in someone's heart eventually will come out of their mouth. Eventually. The words, though, aren't really the source of the problem. The heart is. Folks, this is why it's so important for you, if you're a Christian, to make sure that wholesome thoughts fill your mind, fill your heart. Because if you fill your heart and mind with the filth and trash of this world, and it's very easy to do, especially in the workplace, then what will come out of your mouth, usually in a fit of anger, will be filth and trash in the form of vulgar curse words. How many believers have hurt their testimony for Christ because of crude, coarse language spoken when they are upset? The source of the problem isn't your mouth. It's your heart. If you have a problem with cursing, then recognize that you need to not only repent of your cursing before God, but you need to go and ask forgiveness of those you have cursed at. And you also need to start thinking differently. Discipline your mind. Fill your mind with righteous thoughts so that out of the abundance of your heart will come righteous words. But concerning false teachers, understand this, they're not going to change. They'll continue to be self-righteous. They'll continue to have evil hearts unless the Lord intervenes in their lives brings them to salvation, then they'll change. But until that time, don't listen to them. That is the message that Jesus had for those who heard him give the Sermon on the Mount over 2,000 years ago. And that's his message for us today, as 2,000 years later, we're going through this. Avoid these men, because they're spiritually blind. They'll turn you into the heretics that they are. They're self-righteous hypocrites, and their hearts are evil. So don't listen to them, even out of curiosity. They're bad for you. Take heed to what our Lord is saying. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never trusted Him for salvation, then I urge you to come to Him today for salvation. And how do you do that? You go through the narrow gate into His kingdom. It is narrow because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And it's only because Christ being the eternal God-man died on the cross for sinners like you, sinners like me. He's the only one who could pay an eternal sacrifice, an atonement. He was punished in the place of sinners. The eternal wrath of God the Father poured out on Christ in the place of sinners. And he invites you, in fact, he even commands you to come to him for salvation, repenting of your sin, forsaking your sin of self-absorption, self-centeredness, and anything else you're aware of that's wrong in your life, and placing your trust and confidence in Him alone for your salvation. Christ only. 
When that happens, God will forgive all of your sins and he will impute the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account. I urge you to do that. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. And if you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about coming to Christ for salvation, then just see me as we close the service now. Father, we thank you for these words. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for speaking such truth. Lord, we thank you that you're bold, you're direct, not concerned with being politically correct. You speak the truth in love. And I pray that as this passage has been unfolded and taught this morning, that you help our people to be very discerning, to be very careful who they listen to. And also, Lord, to not be like the Pharisees, to not be critical, overly critical, to not meddle in other people's lives, not be nitpicky. Yes, we are in love to call our brothers and sisters to repent when there's obvious sin, but that's not the thing that we're to major on. Help us, Lord, to make sure that we're not self-righteous, that we are humble, and that we recognize our own sins, and that we deal with our own sins. Lord, I pray if there are any here, and I'm sure there are here, and watching on live stream who have never turned to you for salvation, may this be the day of their salvation. May they be convicted of their sin, and may they repent and come to the Savior. So, Lord... All of this we pray with confidence because we're praying this in Christ's name. Amen.